Well, uh, good morning uh, and welcome to Citizens. Uh, like mentioned, my name is David, uh, but people do call me DC, and I am the Family Life pastor here, and I have the privilege of uh, sharing God's word uh, with us today. Just a quick shout out to our uh, men's community group. Uh, I had the opportunity to sit in with six other men to look at this passage and really unpack what was happening on and it was, uh, what was happening, and it was really fun watching them struggle and wrestle with this text, and we have a doozy uh, with uh, chapter 3 in uh, Ruth. And um, yeah, just to give you a heads up, what we're going to do is really look at uh, this passage. I'm going to explain a lot of what's going on. And at the end, uh, we'll see what God has for us as far as what it means uh, for us today. Uh, so we're continuing this unbelievable and amazing story of these two women and their journey of faith. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Ruth chapter 3. Uh, I want to encourage you to keep it open there if you have a physical Bible or an app, because I'm going to be zooming in and zooming out constantly uh, throughout this message. And so it'll be helpful for you guys to be able to go back and forth. Uh, I'll be reading from the NIV. <clears throat> Let's give our full attention as I read God's word for us. Starting at verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose woman you had worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. And go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, some, something startled the man. He turned. And there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am Ruth. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a garden redeemer of your family, there is another who is more close, closely related than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning. If he wants to do this duty, his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you were wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. This is God's word. Amen. So at the beginning of this book, we are introduced to a Judaite woman named Naomi. 
to escape a famine, she follows her husband, Elimelech, to a land called Moab. And this was considered enemy territory for their people. Uh, Tragically, she lost her husband. And not too long after that, she lost her two sons. And in a patriarchal society, this was pretty much a death sentence. She lost everything, no provision, no protection, and the property that she had was all lost. All she was left with was her two Moabite daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. Uh, She did all that she could to try to convince them to go back home to start all over, a brand new start. Uh, Eventually, Orpah went back while Ruth, we're told, clung to her mother-in-law, Naomi, pledging her entire life to her and to follow after God. And so they head back to Bethlehem. Having nothing, the only way for them to survive was to glean. Gleaning was God's provision for the most vulnerable, the desperate, the poor, the immigrant. And so this provision was the edges of the field were not to be harvested. It was for those that were in need. And so we see Ruth going out, gleaning, uh, to survive for her and her mother-in-law. While gleaning, she meets a man named Boaz, a God-fearing, honorable man. He shows Ruth amazing generosity and kindness, later to discover that Boaz is related to Naomi's late husband, Elimelech. And this was the good news that these two women were waiting for. Boaz was what was known as a kinsman redeemer. In the Mosaic law, a male relative could, had the responsibility to bail out a family member who was in trouble or in danger. He was able to recover all that was lost when Naomi lost Elimelech and her two sons. And so Boaz could marry Ruth, which would in turn restore everything. Property, provision, and protection could be theirs once again. And it was this hope of redemption that spurred them into action. And so what we see is an elaborate plan, a bold proposal, and a beautiful promise. And their plan was quite elaborate and detailed and risky, which which should have us wondering why. Why go through all this trouble? Because we discover that Boaz actually knew of Ruth and Naomi in chapter 2. Why not offer himself to redeem right then and there? And after Naomi revealing to Ruth that Boaz was a kinsman redeemer, why not go to the front door and knock and ask to be redeemed? rather than go through this complicated back door in the threshing floor. So we have to consider once again the cultural nuance of this social situation. We have to remember that Ruth was a Moabite. They were considered less than, underneath, accursed people. To marry a Moabite would have damaged Boaz's reputation and image amongst his own people. Not only that, as far as we know, Ruth is barren. We're told that they didn't have any children. And so given these two factors, that she was a Moabite and that she possibly was barren, she was not a good prospect for marriage. She was undesirable. 
And so knowing the tradition and customs, as well as navigating through this honor-shame culture where many of us were familiar with, Naomi had the forethought of a private rendezvous versus a public one. And the place to execute this plan was a threshing floor. The threshing floor. See, after harvest, what these people will do is bring all the sheaves into this open, hard space. And what they would do is they would beat these sheaves or use animals to stomp over them in order to separate the grain from the husks. And at the end of a harvest season, there would be a, a great party and celebration, a festival, where there would be a lot of eating and drinking. And remember, after a famine, this harvest especially was special. And it was, it was known to get wild at the threshing floor. A lot of sus activities would happen there. What I think of is like a wedding day, right? There's a ceremony after dinner, after all the speeches, we see the parents slowly leaving, right? The lights are turned down. And for some reason, always the first song to signal that it was about to get wild is Little John's turned down for what, <laughs> right? But for me, I'm not a dancer. That's my quiet cue, just slowly slip out. So given the nature of the threshing floor, Ruth had to be careful and precise. Because if she made the mistake of getting to the wrong man, this, that could spell disaster for her. And so we're told that Boaz ate and drink, drank his fill. And the language almost makes it seem like Boaz was drunk. That's not the necessary conclusion that we have to come to. He was in a good place. So after identifying him, she goes to him and she uncovers his feet. This was a very specific instruction that Naomi gave to her, which is quite a weird thing to do. So what is this all about? Um, and so commentators kind of debate on this, and maybe the original readers would also have read that this was a very sexually charged act of uncovering the feet, right? Almost as a form of seduction. Now, if that is true, that puts us in a very precarious situation. We have a God-fearing woman in Ruth, doing an unethical thing and trying to seduce a God-fearing man. So then that has us asking, right, that age-old question, does the end justify the means? Is this right? So this is where we got to zoom out a little bit because I don't see it as a sexually charged act. Right? Everything that we know of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz so far tells me that is not the proper interpretation and actually, what happens after the uncovering tells us that it wasn't seduction that she was after. I take the uncovering of the feet mean to just mean that, to uncover the feet. Right? On a cold night, if the feet are exposed, then it could wake you up. I don't know about you. I don't wear socks when I go to sleep. And if you do, I think that's weird if you do. But if my feet were exposed on a cold night, that would make me uncomfortable, and so that would wake me up. This was, I believe, Ruth's attempt to get Boaz's attention. We also know that Boaz was an honorable man. He tried to protect Ruth while she was gleaning from, her, from the workers. And lastly, if the plan was seduction, there will be no need for a formal proposal which Ruth extends to Boaz. After she uncovers the feet, she proceeds to lie down next to his feet. And that is a huge indication of what 
Ruth's intention was. This was a proposal. Asking Boaz to wed her, requesting protection. The goal was not seduction. The goal was submission. Now, we have to take a pause here. We want to make, uh, um, just pause here for a little bit, a word of caution. We have to be careful of how we contextualize and attempt to apply some of these stories that we read in the Old Testament. So when we're reading scripture, we have to determine whether the author is trying to describe something or prescribe something. There's a difference. What we have here in Ruth 3 is a lot of description, not prescription. This is not a lesson of how to behave in the bedroom. This is not a lesson of how women should make the first move. And it would be irresponsible for a preacher to teach this specific passage and teach on a lesson of submission. There are other places that we can go for that. That is, this place is not the place we go to. What we have here with Ruth is a tremendous act of love for her mother-in-law and an amazing step of faith in God. That is what we have here. And so uncovering the feet worked. Boaz was startled to find a woman laying at his feet. And being that it was dark, he asked the woman to reveal herself. And here Ruth goes off script. This was not a part of the original plan. And requests Boaz to spread the corner of his garment over her. So if lying at the feet wasn't clear enough, she made her intentions even more loud and clear through this request. Again, a proposal. Wed me. Marry me. Protect me. Fulfill your role as a kinsman redeemer. Boaz, again, praises and blesses Ruth. Because Ruth could have gone younger. He could, she could have gone more attractive and even wealthier. But none of those were Ruth's motivation. She wasn't trying to secure for herself her own pleasure, right, her own place. What she was trying to do was restore all that her mother-in-law lost. But we have a major twist in the story. This is the K-drama moment of love triangle. Boaz made known to her a closer relative who would have had higher priority and obligation to redeem them. And again, the integrity and the character of Boaz it's obvious how he felt about Ruth. He adored her, praised her, but he also wanted to honor God and the law by revealing that there's a closer kin who can restore them. He wanted to do things properly. See, I imagine Ruth at this point, her heart dropping. Man, we came up with this elaborate plan of the threshing floor, all for what? I got the wrong kinsman redeemer. But at that moment, we hear this amazing and beautiful promise. If that kinsman redeemer does not redeem you, I will. That is what Boaz says. He tells her to stay overnight because it will be too dangerous to travel in the night. But also she, told, she tells her to leave before anyone recognizes them. Again, honor-shame culture. They don't want there to be any misunderstandings of what happened at the threshing floor. So she proceeds to leave. But again, Boaz blesses her. Six measures of barley. She doesn't go back empty-handed. What do we do 
with Ruth 3? What do we do with this threshing floor plan, this proposal, and this promise? See, seeing this chapter in isolation can be quite confusing and quite conflicting. We need to zoom out and see what's happening in Naomi and Ruth's entire journey so far. The first thing I want us to see is that there is a spectrum of faith. A spectrum of faith. In the first chapter, we almost see this defensive posture of faith where Naomi is just clinging on. She's just trying to survive, trying to endure and persevere through loss. She wrestles with God through her bitter identity. Chapter 2, we see faith taking a step into slightly deeper waters as Ruth, as Ruth risks herself and goes out and gleans just to provide for her and her mother-in-law. And then here in chapter 3, we see faith taking a deep dive into the deep end. Ruth risks her own well-being to provide redemption for her mother-in-law. So, you know, like a diamond that has many different sides that contributes to its beauty, I believe faith does the same. See, living in the West, where we're told that you can do and be and have whatever you want, we often caricature faith in the same way, of grandeur, of winning, and of success. But that's not how faith always looks. That's not what it, that's not what it looks like all the time. Faith is depicted as a widow barely holding on to faith, doing whatever to survive, struggling with identity and purpose. Faith can be a student persevering through depression and feeling isolated. Faith can be questioning God and even being angry with him in the midst of loss and suffering. It can be patiently enduring seasons of difficulty and hard relationships. But faith can also look like this, an aggressive, proactive, planning type of faith. And I think the past three years is probably the former for so many of us trying to navigate through this pandemic. Just barely, the bit of faith that we have, we had just getting us through marriage, our school, our careers. You know, there's one type of faith that is absent in Ruth 3. It's a type of faith that says, let go and let God. Some of us were taught that that is what faith is, letting go and letting God. You know, throughout Ruth's story, what we see is this beautiful, seamless threading of God's sovereign plan being executed through human action. We see that all throughout Ruth. God's sovereign plan being executed through ordinary human action. So in chapter 1, Naomi prays to God, requesting that his daughter-in-laws find rest and find a husband. Chapter 3, there's an opportunity. What does she do? She takes action when there's an opportunity. Boaz blesses Ruth with a prayer in chapter 2. This is what he prayed. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. 
You know when Ruth's, Ruth asks Boaz to take the corner of his garment and spread it over, Ruth is asking Boaz to fulfill the very prayer request that he extended to Ruth. Do something about it, in other words. Supplications while seizing opportunities. Taking steps while trusting in God. That is what we see in the story of Ruth. See, from my observation, there are unhealthy extremes when it comes to the exercise of faith. One extreme takes God's sovereignty as a license to do anything or to do nothing. Right? It's all predetermined. It's this passive and fatalistic approach to God. See, this approach fails to realize all the instructions and all the commands and the imperatives that we find in Scripture. Because God tells us to do things. He tells us to pray. He tells us to give. He tells us to sacrifice. He tells us to worship. He tells us to gather. The other extreme is Christian self-determinism or self-actualization. This is God helps those, those that only help themselves. It's all up to you. You create your own destiny. And you only have yourself to blame if you're unhappy with your life. This too is not the proper exercise of faith the Bible encourages us to, to do. See, Naomi and Ruth had absolute trust in God but they also constructed a plan that took into consideration customs, culture, and tradition. It wasn't blind faith. It wasn't letting go and letting God. It wasn't a complete gamble. Their hope for redemption kept them in constant motion. It led them on a risky journey back to Bethlehem. It took Ruth to the fields to glean, and this hope led Ruth to the threshing floor. See, God's sovereign plan and our actions aren't mutually exclusive. We are often the vehicle in which God fulfills his sovereign will. If we would be led by faith, if we would be led by hope, and this is where we need to ask ourselves a, a question, what are you being led by? If you look at your life, if you look at your bank account, if you look at your relationships and your decisions, what are you being led by? What is the motivation that guides your decision, your planning, and relationships? Or even to flip it, what's the reason for your indecision, your passiveness, and your hesitancy? Does the hope we possess in the gospel make a difference? Does it affect our marriage, your parenting, your career, your studies, your friendships? See, what I observe in my own life, and this is just an honest confession, so much of my life is led by fear. Fear of disapproval, fear of rejection, fear that I will fail as a husband, father, and a pastor. So much of our decision or indecision is based on fear. I'm afraid that I won't find anyone else, so I'll stay in an unhealthy relationship. I'm afraid that I won't get that pr promotion, so even if it means for me to be dishonest, I'll keep going. I'm afraid of getting disappointed and hurt again by the church, so I'll just consume and just attend and never really get involved. 
I'm afraid of shattering the image that people have of me. So I won't reach out for help even though my life is falling apart. Many of us are led by fear. A lot of us were also led by shame, guilt, and pride, none of which God desires for us to be led by. None leads to a life of freedom and joy. See, the hope of the gospel should change everything, everything. Hope changed everything for Naomi and Ruth. The prospect of a kinsman redeemer, what do we see? How does Naomi change? She shed her bitter identity. She turned the focus away from herself, and she now turns her focus on Ruth, wanting to secure her arrest and a husband. Ruth, too, goes through a dramatic makeover. We're told that she's washed. She puts on perfume. She removes the article of clothing that would signal her grieving as a widow. And what does she do? She dressed to the nines. She's dressed as a bride. Transformation. And the hope that led them to action led to an actualization of that hope in Boaz's promise. It's so easy for us to see, especially a story like Ruth 3, as just a story, a fairy tale, because we don't feel the weight of desperation that these two women feel. Desperate is not how we would describe our lives living in SoCal. For a lot of us, we won't use that word, desperate. Perfect weather, access to quality, quality education, career opportunities, food. We have excess. We have plenty. That is our experience living in SoCal. But this is why we need to be that much more vigilant and that much more focused. Because all these things can lull us into a false sense of security, thinking that we're okay. This is why it is so difficult for the privileged and wealthy to enter God's kingdom. Comfort and success can veil our absolute need for saving. That's why Jesus taught again and again, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It is the least of these, not the best, that would get in. And so all throughout Jesus' ministry, he's constantly subverting people's expectations. Those that we would see as qualified weren't. Those that were seen as disqualified actually were qualified to get in. The prostitutes and the lepers experienced Jesus' kingdom while the religious were on the outside looking in. The religious elite used their traditions, their observance of the law to determine their acceptance, while sinners had nothing but the mercy of God to get them in. And that's the difference. One had a system of righteousness, while the other clearly understood that they had none. They had none. And this is a difficult truth that I want us to hear very clearly today. We are all desperate. Because we are all spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing to offer God that would get us in. Because he demands perfect righteousness 
which none of us have. So there is no plan that we can construct. There is no proposal that we can extend to God. And there is no promise that we can make to be redeemed. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. God constructed an elaborate plan. He sent his one and only son, Jesus, to redeem sinners like you and me. What we, have is, what we have in Jesus is a proposal where he would willingly wed himself to an undesirable, unfaithful people. And what we have in the resurrection we celebrated a couple of weeks ago is a beautiful promise, a permanent union. See, while Naomi and Ruth had to act for their own redemption, in the gospel we have Jesus who acted on our behalf. He condescended from his throne. He laid aside his privilege, took on human flesh. In humility, he gave himself, not to be served, but to be a servant of all. He too would go to the threshing floor, but he would be the one threshed. On that cross, he would for the first time experience separation from his father. The silence was deafening. After three days, Jesus would rise again from the dead, conquering the very thing that got in the way of us being redeemed, reconciled to our Father. He conquered over sin and death. And he comes to you and me with the proposal, offering himself to be our bridegroom, promising his faithfulness to never leave us nor forsake us, offering a permanent and everlasting union that nothing can separate us from his love. The story of Ruth points us and is a foreshadow of the ultimate kinsman redeemer, who is Jesus Christ. Religion will tell you, you have to be lovable in order to be accepted. In the gospel, Jesus' acceptance of you is what makes you lovable. His love refines our love. He loved us first. And he invites us to respond to his proposal and receive this promise by faith. Faith. So for those of us who have yet to receive this gift of grace, please consider Jesus today for yourself to be your redeemer. And if that's you, just come and speak to any one of the staff members and we'll love to pray with you and walk with you. I want to close with a question. What would it look like if our lives embodied the redemption that was actualized in Jesus? Let me ask that one more time. What would our lives look like if we embodied the redemption that was actualized in Jesus Christ? You know, some of us were in a season where we're having a defensive posture of faith. You're just trying to endure and persevere. And if that's you, I want to say don't suffer alone. Don't walk by yourself. Please reach out for help and we we'll love as a community to come around you and walk with you through that difficult season. But for those of us who are kind of leaving that time of, you know, just enduring and persevering, you're ready, ready to live boldly. I just want to encourage you, this hope that we have should change everything. It should change our finances, our relationships, how we work. 
When we have the love of God, when we know and embrace his acceptance and his approval, it should change everything. From passive to being active, from consuming to contributing, from complaining to being thankful, from self-preservation to self-sacrifice. But it's so hard. It's so hard to embody this redemption. It's so difficult to live a life of grace in a system that requires us to constantly prove ourselves, to perform and to earn. This is where it gets so confusing. See, God sees you as loved and accepted, but our experience in this world tells us otherwise. God says you're not defined by your relationship status, by your wealth or your resume, but that's the way that the world appraises our worth. God doesn't define you by your worst moments or failures, but our past serves as a constant indictment. You know, there's this very profound, subtle thing that Ruth says when, he's, when she's asked to reveal herself. She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Now, you might not think that's that big of a statement, but in chapter 2, all she was known as was Ruth the Moabite. Shame. No more. She sees herself as a child of God. Brothers and sisters, by faith, you are his child. May we embrace this truth. May our confidence standing before God move us to live boldly, maybe even to get involved and serve in this community. May we be generous with others, knowing that the inheritance that we possess is held in our risen Savior, is secure in his hand. So let's live our lives infused with this hope that is ours in Christ Jesus for his glory and also for our good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this amazing story of Naomi and Ruth. Thank you for their example of faith in all different stages. God, it's so hard sometimes to believe in this gospel truth. This world confuses us and we get sucked in to the systems of this world, forgetting that with you, we have security. With you, we have approval. With you, we are accepted. Not because there's anything good in us, but because of the goodness of our kinsman redeemer who acted on our behalf to redeem us. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here who have yet to receive this amazing promise and to respond to this proposal. Holy Spirit, stir in us faith to believe. Help us to trust that we cannot that help us to believe that we can save ourselves and help us to trust that you did everything for us. And for us as a citizen's community, may we be a reflection of this hope in how we love one another and how we serve one another. May we truly be a city on a hill for others to see, to even glean from, and to experience the redemption that you offer. Thank you so much, Lord, for your love. 
Help us to firmly grip to your promises for today and for the life to come. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Church, let's stand and respond to God in worship at this time.